Hello and welcome to the Sabbath School Commentary. My name is Leah Hodge and I work here in the North New South Wales Conference Office in the Evangelism Department, Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department as well. And I'm delighted to be here today to bring you the, the podcast for um, lesson number nine, To Serve and to Save. It has been a great blessing to study the book of Isaiah, particularly these chapters that I've been digging into in Isaiah chapter 41 and chapter 42 and 44. And so I hope you will be blessed by, by the scriptures that we're going to be looking at and digging in deep. So God's word has so many blessings in it when you, not just surface readers, but when you get down and you really try to understand what is what is what's happening? Because Isaiah, he can be a hard book to understand. Um, this you got to know um, the context, you got to know the history, and it's nice to be able to piece everything together like a puzzle. So it starts off with Isaiah forty-one verse eight, and the whole idea is this servant coming forward. Um, this idea of a servant and. There are two servants that we see depicted in Isaiah, particularly these chapters that we're looking at. First, we see the servant being the nation of Israel. And the second servant or the other servant that is brought forth is actually pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we look at the first verse here. It's Isaiah 41 verse 8. It says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And we have here, this is depicting the nation of Israel, because as you go on, you can tell um, that it's talking about the nation, because God here is giving a promise to the nation of Israel, and we'll read that in just a moment. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it talks about another servant. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And if you read the next verses after that, you'll notice that it's talking about here, the Messiah. It's not talking about the nation in this in these verses. So it's really um, awesome to be able to study and understand who this servant is. When we go back to Isaiah 41, it talks about this great promise that I'm sure every single Christian has claimed. And it's a very famous one. It says, Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed for I am thy God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the hand of my righteousness. And isn't that a beautiful promise that God gives to the nation of Israel at this time, but also to every believer who takes God at his word. He promises to help us. We don't need to fear about anything. And God is in contrast telling the nation of Israel to trust in him. Because if you read the first couple of verses of chapter 41, he's talking about those that put their trust in idols, those who make graven images, and they spend all their time and all their effort in making these idols made with man's hands. And when they're fearful, they all come together and they build them and they, they say, don't be afraid, we'll, we'll build more. We'll make sure that they don't move and they hammer them in place. But God is saying, I am your God and you don't need to fear about anything. I will help you in contrast to what the other nations are doing. 
In verse 13, he says, For I, the Lord God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Doesn't our world need that kind of message today? Fear not. When the world is full of fear, full of anxiety, full of worries, full of care, and everyone's trying to put, well, everyone's putting their their trust and their hope in the things of this world, whether it be money, education, status, or just human beings. Um, God is saying, calling us to put our trust in him and he, can, and he contrasts that by saying that there is no one else like him. And if you read, you know, in Isaiah brings this out constantly that he is the creator God. He's in control of creation. He is the one that fills the oceans. He's the one that put the, you know, expanse of the sky. He rolled it out. He stretched open the heavens. And he's trying to show us that he's in control. Will we put our faith and trust in him? And that is the role of the nation, because it says in Sunday's lesson, what is the role of the servant nation? And the role is to seek God, to seek help from him, and to not put our faith and trust in the things of this world, in the things that the world is putting their faith and trust in. He's saying, no, no, don't look to that, but look to me and put your faith and trust in me. That was the role of the nation of Israel. But sadly, they kept on looking to other people instead of to their true God. Okay, moving on to Isaiah 42, and this is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Beautiful text here describing his ministry, what it would look like. And I'm just going to read to you Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I am uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, Till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. What is this? What are these verses talking about? Let's have a look into them a little bit deeper, because it's a really beautiful picture of of Christ and how he served humanity. It's interesting. The first thing in verse number one, the thing that Christ or the servant here is to do is to bring forth judgment to the Gentiles or to the nations. Judgment and justice are the same word here used. So he's to bring forth justice, judgment to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Well, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was called by God out of Babylon, out from his home to be used by God to bless the world to bless all the nations. It says that in him will all the families of the earth be blessed because the Redeemer was to come through his, li- through his line and also the nation of Israel was to come through from Abraham and that nation was to serve a particular purpose. It was to bless the earth. That's why God chose Abraham so that the world would know his character. God gave the children of Israel the oracles of God, they were given his law. They were shown what he was like so that they could in turn bless the world around them. 
But sadly, we know the history of the Israelites, that they failed in their mission of giving this representation of God to the world. And instead of sharing the blessings of the truth, they kept them to themselves because there was a point in time where because of the constant miserable failure of them apostatizing and going into idolatry, because they were mixing with the other nations, they got to a point after captivity that they were, when they were released from Babylon, when they came back and set up their nation in Jerusalem, they came to a point where they would shut themselves away from all the other nations because they didn't want to be tempted into idolatry. So they put up this wall, this separation between them and the world, and they didn't want to share the blessings that God had given them with other people. They hoarded the living manna and it turned into corruption. And there's a lesson there. Remember when the, when the manna fell, they were only to collect a certain amount. And if they collected more than that, then it would turn to corruption. And that's what they did with the living truth, with the living manna from heaven, Jesus Christ. They, they didn't share the oracles of God. However, in contrast to this, Jesus came to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And don't we see that as we look through the Gospels, if we, as we look through his ministry, we see he just did that. You think about it. He came to set things straight. He came to reveal the character of the Father, not just for the Jews, because they were in deception about who God was as well, but for the whole world. And you think about it, look at his ministry with the Samaritan woman. He met the woman at the well who was obviously not of the Jewish nation and they hated the Samaritans. Yet he had he struck, struck up a conversation with this woman and he actually purposely went out of his way to go through Samaria just so he could meet this woman and reveal himself as the Messiah, the saviour of the world to her. And the disciples did not understand it. But here we see him bringing forth justice to the Gentiles. They had every, they had every right to know who their saviour was. We also have the Phoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, who came to, to Jesus on the way and was begging him to help his de- demon-possessed daughter And we know the disciples treated her pretty rudely as well, as well as Jesus, who was testing them to see how they would react to her. But we know that he healed the daughter. He delivered this Canaanite woman who wasn't of the faith of Israel because he loved. That's what he came to do. He came to serve humanity. We also have the example of the Roman centurion who had a servant that was sick. And this centurion came to Jesus Jesus didn't turn him away and say, no, you're not of the Jews. I'm not going to help you. No, he healed the servant of the centurion. He brought justice to the Gentiles. He brought light to them. He brought the truth to them. We also have the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus makes a commendation of the Good Samaritan. And we can see here he's trying to break down the walls that, of, of partition that the Jews have put up. Another example is when Jesus healed the lepers, there was 10 lepers. One of them was a Samaritan, and that was the only one that came back to give God glory. So here we see in Isaiah 42 verse 1, how the ministry of Jesus did bring justice to the nations through all these examples, and there are many more. And that is our role as Christians. We are to represent the character of God to others and not just keep it to ourselves. 
In verse 2, let's have a look at what it says again. We'll just go over it. It says, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor call his, cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, what is this talking about? Well, it's talking about someone who's not going out screaming and proclaiming and drawing attention to themselves in a way that would bring about pride and pomp and display. Jesus didn't want to attract to himself people as a mere healer or a wonder worker because he was doing a lot of that. He was healing a lot of people, but he wanted to draw people to him as the savior of the world, not just as someone who came to heal them, but someone who came to save them from sin. And you can see this in John chapter six, um, a great illustration of what it means that he would not cry nor lift up his voice um, and cause it to be heard in the street. A great illustration of this was found when he fed the 5,000 and there was a great multitude that followed him. It says in John Chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And a great multitude followed him because, this is the reason why, they saw the miracles which he did on them and they wanted to follow him. And it was this multitude that were there and he ended up feeding them all, 5,000 plus women and children. And in John 6, verse 15, it says, That when Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again unto a mountain himself alone. Now, why did Jesus do that? Because they were merely coming to him because they wanted to make him king to relieve them of the oppression of the Romans. They weren't coming to him as the person who could save them from their sins. He wasn't drawing attention to himself as someone of a worldly sense, in a worldly sense of pride and pomp and display. This is very different to what the Pharisees would do in their religious services. They would make everything a display. They would show off their worship and their charities and they would prove their zeal and their religion by making it a theme of discussion. And there would often be in the streets disputes among these Pharisees about things concerning the law. And so there's always this angry controversy that you could go on, um, that were going on in the streets. And you can see in contrast to this was Jesus's life where there was no noisy disputation, no show of display or worship. He wasn't doing things to gain applause or to, yeah, just for people to praise him. But rather, he was to reveal the character of God in humility, in service to others. And it's really beautiful in Malachi, oh, sorry, no, in Hosea 6, verse 3, It says that talking about Christ, the Messiah, his going forth was to be prepared as the morning. Now, how does the morning begin? The sun slowly rises and it, the earth is dimly lit by the early hours of the morning. So it's quiet. It's gentle. It comes up slowly. Daylight breaks upon the earth and dispels the shadows of darkness. And this is exactly what Christ's ministry was like. He was quietly and gently revealing the son of righteousness, which has healing in his wings to the world. And we can see that this is fulfilled here in Isaiah 42 verse um, 
verse two, where it says he would not make, um, you know, he will not cry and lift up his uh, voice to be heard in the street. He would go about quietly, gently doing his work. What a beautiful picture we have of Jesus here. Let's have a look at the third thing here. It says, a bruised reed, this is Isaiah 42 verse three, a bruised reed, he shall not break and a smoking flax, he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. This is a beautiful picture here. We've got two illustrations that Isaiah is using of the Messiah here. One of them is a bruised reed. Well, if you ever looked at a reed, they're quite flimsy anyway. And if it's bruised, it does not have much life in it. It's usually bent over and looks like it's going to die. It's drooping. And a dimly burning wick that is barely burning, it's smoking even. And the tiniest disturbance would even snuff it out. These are the two descriptions that Isaiah is giving here of how the Messiah was going to deal with humanity. Even though there was no one stronger than Jesus, he was fearless before those who opposed him. He claimed victory over sin and death. He confronted hypocrisy. He was able to stand up for the truth. He wasn't afraid to be put in uncomfortable situations. Yet even though he had all this strength, all this um, ability, he was not insensitive to people. He showed benevolence, compassion, and tender sympathy from those who were weak, those who were suffering. I love this quote in Desire of Ages. It says, Christ himself did not suppress one word of truth, but he spoke it always in love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful, kind attention in his intercourse with people. He was never rude, never needlessly spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censure human weakness. And that's found in Desire of Ages, page 353. What a picture do we have of Jesus, so tender to humanity, so caring for those who are brokenhearted. I think that's beautiful. And what an example do we have to follow? I think after reading, you know, the description of Jesus here, we should then reflect upon ourselves. How do we treat others? How do we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we censure them? or criticize or find gossip on our lips? Or are we laboring with them for those who have fallen into temptation and sin? Are we laboring with these people to bring them up out of that? I love it how we are to meant to edify the church. We're not meant to break down the church. Do we have the same attitude as the elder brother of the prodigal son? Remember how the prodigal son came home, even though he'd wasted his Uh, father's inheritance, he'd lived a life far from God. When he came back, how did the elder brother respond to him? Was he compassionate and loving and rejoicing that his brother had returned to God? No, we don't find that picture. We find him being censorious and quite annoyed, really, that his father was celebrating him. He He thought it wasn't fair. We need to look at our attitude. Um, How do we treat others Particularly, we should be treating our own, uh, our own family, um, our church family with love and with sympathy and with forbearance. God is so forbearing with our mistakes and we need to be forbearing with other people's mistakes. 
Um, we shouldn't be so harsh and so critical of other people. Let us have that love and sympathy that we that Christ He revealed. You know, when someone's so broken and so down, um, they don't need to be told how bad they are. They need to be lifted up and prayed for. Moving on to Isaiah 44, we have here an amazing prophecy, which I think is just absolutely mind-blowing and really one that affirms scripture and the validity of the Bible. And this is the um, prophecy of Cyrus coming out, how God calls Cyrus into, into life. And it's found in um, Isaiah 44, and it's also found in Isaiah 45. And it says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will lose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. Isn't it amazing? And the reason for this, the reason why God has called Cyrus is in verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake... And Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. That is absolutely amazing that 146 years, approximately, this was before Cyrus. Um, 146 years, God, through the prophet Isaiah, foretold that a man named Cyrus would be born and become king and overtake Babylon. And exactly how he would do it, it is put here that the gates would be opened, the iron bars would be cut asunder. And we know because of the Cyrus cylinder that this is indeed what happened. And isn't this just amazing validity to the Bible and how it can really confirm our faith because we know that this happened and not just from the Bible, but from other historical documents. It's interesting how it calls... Um, God calls Cyrus his anointed, and that's in verse 1. And we know that the anointed is, um, you know, the true anointed is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And um, it's interesting just the parallels because, you know, Cyrus, he delivered the children of Israel from captivity. He, he allowed them to go back and set up their true, you know, true worship. He restored um, Israel to a nation. And that's really amazing because, you know, that's what Christ came to do. He came to set the captives free. He came to restore Israel, to restore true worship, what it meant to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we know that Cyrus, um, obviously he wasn't um, like Jesus in all points, but there are some, you know, those specific things that um, the parallels between them was, was amazing in the fact that of his deliverance of God's people. I love that. And in, in Tuesday's lesson, it asks at the bottom, it says, think about some other Bible prophecies that have come to pass as predicted and talks about Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9. It says, what kind of hope do these prophecies offer us as individuals? And the prophecies of the Bible was actually the one thing that got me into the Seventh-day Adventist church. I was absolutely mind blown when I studied, when I was revealed Daniel chapter 7, 
And I just couldn't believe it that these things were foretold and it was so accurate. And I just think prophecy is so powerful in bringing people to the truth, bringing people to God. It sets God apart from any other false God, any, anything else in this world, because he says that he declares the end from the beginning. And this is proven by prophecy. It's so airtight, especially you think of Daniel chapter nine, the prophecy in there about every particular of Christ's ministry being um, time appointed and that he came exactly on time. And I love it how in um, Peter, Peter talks about the more sure word of prophecy, even though he saw Christ and his ministry and live with him, he said, even though we were eyewitnesses of all these things, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And that is absolutely amazing. I love it. I love it. And prophecy also um, unites all scripture together because there's all these different moving parts in the Bible, but prophecy like can, it runs through them all. And the ones that are fulfilled, it just links everything in a nice, beautiful chain. So it is super faith affirming and I absolutely love prophecy. <laughs> in Leviticus 26, which is on Wednesday's lesson, it talks about from verse 40 to 45, God's promises that he will remember his people when they have, you know, turned away from him, when they've got walked contrary to his ways, but then when they confess their iniquity and when they turn from it, that he will remember them, that he will remember his covenant with them. And that if they confess their sins, that he will come and deliver them when, you know, it talks about them being going to, into the, the land of their enemies. And he just here is showing that if we humble ourselves, that he will accept it and that he will return and he will deliver us. And this is really powerful. It reminds me of First Samuel chapter 15 about what God really wants from his people. Like, what is it that God wants? And in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have the story of Saul, King Saul, and he was told to go slay the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them. He didn't, you know, he was meant to get rid of every one of them. And he doesn't do that. And he comes back and he's all, you know, proud in front of Samuel to say, look, I've done the commandment of the Lord. Yet he hadn't done that. And Samuel comes in with a rebuke to him. And in verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. Here we see what God really wants from his people. He wants us to obey. He doesn't care for all these outward forms of religion, all these, you know, a profession from our lips. He wants us to obey. And it goes well with Psalms 51. In Psalms 51, David's prayer of repentance, it says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in bird offering, but this is what he wants. This is in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. So here we have, just like in Leviticus 26, if we humble ourselves, if we confess our sins, our iniquities, and we have that broken and contrite spirit, 
then God will remember us and he will not despise us. He will not cast us us off. It's just like in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I learned that there is hope in God. He is a faithful God and all he wants from us is to obey. And then if we if we go astray and if we walk contrary to his ways, all he needs and all he wants is us to confess and be real with him and be open with him and he will forgive. He says he will bring us back into a relationship with him. Oh, don't we serve a merciful, loving God? The lesson ends off in Isaiah 49 and it talks, um, it goes through Isaiah uh, 49 verses 1 to 12, which we won't read all of them, but I just want to draw our attention to verse number four, which says, then I said, this is talking about the servant again. We here have the servant mentioned, and this is talking about the Messiah, the servant. In verse three, it says, thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then said I, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with God. And if you look at Christ's ministries, he had every right to feel like he had labored in vain. When you look at his, um, he had every reason to be discouraged, even though in Isaiah 42, it says that he wouldn't be discouraged and he would continue going forward. But, you know, his disciples, he was with them for three and a half years. They barely understood his mission, even at the very end, when he's just about to go to heaven. In Acts chapter one, verse six, he he just gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they ask him, you know, this is after his, you know, crucifixion, after his resurrection. You'd think that they would get the picture. And they ask him, will you therefore be setting up your kingdom? to restore Israel. So they, they clearly didn't understand even then Christ's mission. But we know when the Holy Spirit came, which is, you know, in the next chapter, understanding came to them. And that's a really powerful point, actually. But yeah, Christ, he, he had every reason to think that everything was being done in vain. You know, the Jews rejected Christ. They rejected the one person that had chosen them, that had given them all the law and all the prophets and yet he came and they they didn't know him and that's really really sad and you know he would have been very discouraged um he could have been very discouraged by that fact yet he kept going and he saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied you know the people that he chose and he gave every advantage to missed their opportunity And we can sometimes think when we're laboring for souls, when we're spending time and energy in praying for people, in sharing Bible studies with them, that they're just not getting it, that they're not making progress. We can easily get discouraged, but we need to remember Jesus kept going forward. And he said in verse four that his judgment was with the Lord and his work is with my God. We remember, we got to remember that it is God who brings the success. We are to do what he tells us to do. We are to go out and spread forth seed 
to everyone in the world. We don't know what's going to prosper, but yet we are to do our work and leave the results with God, just like Jesus was faithful in his ministry. And, you know, when Pentecost came and the thousands of souls were converted through, you know, the preaching of Peter, it was because of Christ's ministry that all those people ended up being converted. So we need to remember to trust God and to keep moving forward, even though everything else might be so discouraging. It might be, you know, the outlook looks dim. We, we, can, we can learn from Jesus in the fact that even though things looked really bad, he kept going and kept committing everything to his father. Well, that's all we have time for today in the commentary for this week. And I just want to leave you with the thought that Christ, as we can see in his life and ministry, truly was the servant of servants. And he is calling us to do that same type of work. And I love the, the quote on, um, on Sabbath afternoon, which says many people, I'm just paraphrasing here, many people want to go and visit the places where Jesus walked on this earth. They want to go, um, you know, to the Sea of Galilee and to all the places that he visited. But it says that we can be close with Christ. We can walk with him because where Jesus was, was beside the sickbed, in the hovels of poverty, in the crowded alleys of the great city. Those are the places where the human hearts that he was trying to reach were. And if we want to be close with Christ and do as Jesus did, we need to walk in these same footsteps. God bless you.